TikTok. Derek Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex Talk with Derek Miley. Hey, folks. Welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. Y'all, I'm, I'm really excited to, to bring you someone that I'm nerding out pretty much. So let's, let's be completely real. A.D. Kelleher, author of Little Green Pills, worked in national security and other wonderful uh, places that we are not going to mention here. Thank you for, for coming, A.D. I just am so glad that you're here and I cannot wait to talk about this book. Well, I'm delighted to be here. We're going to jump right into it because this book, um, I, I, I'm laughing because I, as I was reading it, I just kept feeling like, oh, this has some of my favorite worlds. So like, talk to me about this, creating this book, the process that you went through. It's all sorts of thriller, erotica, true crimey feeling. Is that a thing? Is that like, is that what you were intending to do? Talk to me about it. Well, yeah, I wanted it to be kind of unique. It, to me, it, it's, it's an experiment. You know, I grew up reading sci-fi and loving sci-fi, but the science was always, you know, physics, chemistry, math. It's never any of the social sciences. It's never about politics or sociology or sexuality or any of that other stuff. And I was like, there's no reason why there shouldn't be something that draws all those together. So, and I love thrillers. I also write thrillers. So separate from that, it's like combining all the things that are in my field of interest and, and seeing where it lands. And, you know, I've been a, a lifelong uh, psychology enthusiast and, and mm. you know, all, all versions of it, including evolutionary psychology in particular, because, you know, it gives a lot of insight into why we do what we do, which we're not frequently aware of. <laughs> oh, yes. That's why, you know, that's why I have a job. Um, yeah. But also, yeah. like, like <laughs> I think that is that was very keen of you. As I was reading it, I actually sent a snap to my group of friends and I was like, um, just being real, like, they, I have never read a book that actually like tickled my my nerdness and got me off so like that was like that was that was unique I think it's a really interesting frame in fact like I pulled a quote um Freud may have been a cocaine-addled, sexually obsessed eccentric, but that didn't mean he was wrong when he theorized about how much life is, was tied to sexual imperatives. And I was like, oh my God, oh, the sex therapist, you got me. You got me right in the guts. Like, now, when, when I hear that aloud, it sounds like a horrible run-on sentence. But <laughs> the fact of that is... Und undisputably true, I would assert. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the premise, the premise of the book and, and what you were hoping to kind of um, explore, the ideas you were hoping to explore. Well, you know, one of them is just simply sex differences. You know, the, the way society is structured and, and, you know, this goes down to to philosophy is we don't see the structure that's under us. We just assume it's there and kind of keep on doing. Like, we count on men to act a certain way. We count on women to act a certain way. And even apart from feminism or any other social trend, we still count on those. And the changes that they happen, they happen at the edges. So fundamentally, we expect men to do one thing and women to do another thing. And so 
And it's important to realize that there are sex differences and that they matter because they matter for public policy. They matter for, for a bunch of things. And our interpretation of them, like I, I'm on, I'm constantly talking to my clients about the cultural frame in which their sexual health perspective developed. So how did they get to understand sexuality? How did they get to understand their own and what cultural bias is impacting that? And oftentimes they're absolutely shocked about how some of the anger or distance or anxiety that they have is tied up in cultural expectation. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's key. And, you know, one of the, the interesting things of having spent time overseas, including living in Europe for a couple of years, is they have what I consider a much healthier attitude towards sex. I mean, sex is just natural. So that's fine to show it on TV. Mm. They're freaked out. It's like, why do you show people's exploding heads and getting shot and blood? And it's like, murder is the stuff we shouldn't be seeing on TV sex is fine. We all do that. It's like, you know, once you put it like that, that makes an awful lot of sense. Yes. Like the, the idea that pleasure is more taboo than violence. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I love our country and I've served it in various capacities for going on 14 years, but that doesn't mean I can't see I'm blind to the cultural flaws. And that's one of them. It's like, you know, we haven't come as far from our Puritan roots as you might think. Yes. <laughs> I, just, but, I feel like that's a, the conversation I have every day. Yes. But <laughs> going back to, to the question, kind of to give a more specific answer, you know, this may sound like a, a, an ad, but uh, so there's this podcast that's been around for a long time, This American Life, and they had an episode on testosterone and the effects of it. And what really is striking is they had two different, the first two segments of it. And one was a guy who had this medical condition where his body completely stopped producing testosterone. And the other one was the experience of a female to male transsexual who, as she started and, and, and then progressed along her transition, she took large doses of testosterone as she started masculinizing. And what was striking, and you got to see, if you listen to it, hilarious is so much of the stuff that she did not like uh, uh, that she called, you know, kind of problematic before transition started as she became more masculine and, and, and started getting stirs and which is what she really wanted to be called to her and to, to identify that way. She started doing all the stuff that she had hated, <laughs> that she had decried as a feminist. Oh, okay, so somebody who was um, identifying themselves as transgendered, and then they went, they started to go through their their transition and going from female to male, and then kind of seeing this this cultural difference that they had maybe never seen before as they transitioned and became him. Is that kind of how I'm hearing? Yes, yes, hearing? yes, yes, exactly. The libido skyrocketed in a way that felt almost out of control is, is what the impression that you got. And, you know, she, and then he, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's like, at what point in time does she become he? So I, I don't want to stumble over the pronouns. Yeah. Um, he's that's a he now. <clears throat> so we'll call them, we'll call them he, he, if that's how they identify. So he, 
he decided to go through the entire transition and now is experiencing a, an increase in libido. This is something I hear from some of my trans folks that they, they, they hit that unexpected puberty again. Right? Yes. Yes. It's, that's exactly it. It's puberty. And one of the comments that he made was it gives me a lot of sympathy for teenage boys. And I had to learn how to think again. I learned, had to learn how to talk again and things that I could say as a woman, we're now labeled misogynist coming out of my mouth as a man. So it was really, it, 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 all the underlying assumptions that we never see because we're just used to going through the world as we're used to, that all shifts when you take on a different, completely different sexual identity. Yes. And I, I can't tell you how many of my trans folks talk about like their unintentional uh, becoming an like a cultural anthropologist. Like they did not intend to do that. And yet their experience is going from a cult, the cultural norms of appearing or being more feminine to being more masculine and that how, what that's like for them and how they think, how they are in the world and what decisions they now have to make with their partners or, or with the people around them and the things they say. Because now, as, like you just identified, like as a man, if that's how that person identifies, you don't necessarily get to say some of the things that maybe a woman would get to say. Just like, just like I am a white woman, I cannot, nor will I ever say the N-word. Yeah. There are cultural norms that we must abide by. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. And, and just to be clear for listeners, this is not really primarily about trans issues. It was the experience of a trans person that sparked the idea because, and this is a extremely well documented, I, I put some stats in the end, over 40% of women self-identify as having low libido at some point in their life, lower than they want, whatever that self-definition is. So the idea, and, and you know, I've had friends who have self-identified that way and have tried testosterone patches for that. And, you know, they were not happy with the results. It helped a little, but you also got acne, you got other things. So just the basic premise is, what if you had a form of testosterone that didn't cause the masculinizing thing? Mm. And the answer is, because it's such a wide need, mm -hmm. it would be earth-shaking in, in, in its ramifications because I'll, the pent-up demand would be like nothing we've ever seen. And the consequences in the change of behavior would very quickly ripple throughout society. And society would not be prepared to handle it because they've never seen anything like it. This is I, this was akin to like while while I was reading it, it was like for me while what happened, and I actually talked to um, my wonderful mentor uh, Ricky Siegel about this a lot um, about what happened after Viagra came out, mm -hmm. and and the whole idea that we had this magic pill to give to give those with penises erections, and that and then we found out, of course. 
afterwards that it, it's not enough, that this magic pill isn't the, the thing that gives men erections primarily. It doesn't mean that, that if there's a physical issue that we can't help it with, with medications and, and other things, but that the psychological issues of desire are numerous mm-hmm. and absolutely can be treated, but they're treated by people like me and by like other psychologists and, and clinical sexologists and things like that. It's not this magic process, but your book poses like, if it was, what would that mean for women? What would it mean for the dynamic within any kind of partnership? What would it mean for the sexual dynamics and how would it change across culture? And you frame this entire issue. Your, Your literary environment is a scarcity of population. Yes. Well, that's another one of the the sociological, political things is our economy is built on the assumption that most of us are going to start having or continue to have kids. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and and this goes back to the work of the evolutionary psychologist I talked to. It's like, you know, society is the way it is because of the choices that women make. They are the sexual selectors. Sex is happening when women choose to have sex. Because if it were up to men, there'd be like sex all the time. Because <laughs> what I envisioned was essentially, it's like, well, if, if men and women had very similar mechanics of their libido, why would it not be like the bathhouses in San Francisco and that, that short window of period before AIDS appeared, mm, where it became mm. extremely promiscuous? That's one of the reasons AIDS wound up being so, so devastating, because there was, uh, you know, a lot of sex going on which is, you know, I'm fine with, and, but it had consequences. And, you know, this is not really about them. It's just like, well, what would happen if that kind of spread to, to the rest of the world? If everyone started acting like gay guys of that time period, because after that, the culture changed there. They had to adapt to that or because of a lethal threat. So that's what I had in mind. And then Dr. Miller, one of the evolutionary psychologists, he's like, you know, this kind of reminds me of these of that period between uh, before AIDS appeared in San Francisco. I was like, you nailed it. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Right. Um, like, what is but, the con? Like the con? What would be those consequences? And I think that that's an interesting perspective in its in itself. That that the consequences of of not having education. <laughs> not understanding our bodies, not understanding how to protect yourself and like culture's abject like rejection of like the, the, the gay population overall and how that increased the harm that AIDS did to them. Right. But also like, what would that look like then in a world where, where the, the shoe is on the other foot for women? Like, what would that, if there was, there was still very little education about like what happens with their bodies, what happens when you have a higher desire and then how to protect yourself, how to ask permission from your partner. The BDSM scene in in the (laughs) book that I thought was so interesting was that it came from this perspective of not necessarily a lot of consent. That there was there was this boundary pushed, and the intentional pieces of that that you placed in the book I found to be fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, for people who know a little bit about BDSM, the ethical basis of that is safe, sane, and consensual, and it requires upfront communication and agreement, which is why so many people who are into that kind of kink 
absolutely hated Fifty Shades of Grey because it transgressed it. Oh yeah, all over the place. Oh yeah, all about, over the place. That was about power and control. Like that. That's what. That's what Fifty Shades of Grey was about. As much and, as as much as they tried to sell it as something else. Well, and and you know that's why it was an abomination because for people who had a yin in that direction, they then thought, oh well, this is how this is done. Mm. And you know, it's it was one of the bits of research I ran across is like, well, the brand of rope mentioned in Fifty Shades of Grey started selling out across the country and the sales figures were off the charts. So people are now thinking, well, this is how that's done. It's like, no, this is a lesson in how not to do it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. I do want to come back to some of the research that you explored to build this book, you talked about some of the evolutionary psychologists that you looked out, that you got information from, and that, that talk a little bit about the research and the underpinnings that you really explored before you really got into the meat of the book. Well, fortunately for me, the experts I wanted to talk to all were living in Albuquerque. So on a trip to Albuquerque, I got to speak to Dr. Jeffrey Miller, evolutionary psychologist, Dr. Diana Fleischman. Um, and they are now married. They weren't when I spoke to them. And then Dr. David Lay. Oh, I love Dr. David Lay. He's been on yeah, the show. He's, he's, he's friend great. of the pod. Indeed. And so, uh, yeah, and I, I linked to uh, his books in the afterward, or at least some of his books. And he is a sex researcher in addition to being also a, a clinical therapist and a... Brazilian jiu-jitsu advocate and many other things. He has also done scholarship on pornography and and different kinds of sex. Uh, He did a book on cuckolding, which is, you know, kind of a, it's, it's, I haven't read that book. I've read a lot of his other stuff, but, you know, fascinating and highly taboo worlds. So he was a good person to talk to. And it was in talking to him you know, we, we chat on, on the idea that's like, you know, he talked about one, who gets into dominance and submission and why? And he was talking about how for women who want to be a submissive, they, they do it because it's kind of strangely empowering. They feel cherished in, in having someone want to do that. Whereas men who become submissive often do it as, for want of a better word, a vacation from responsibility. Let someone else take the reins. Let someone else be in control. And we also talked about sex work and how there's really never been a market for hetero sex work, by which I mean women purchasing sex from men. He's like, it's tried a couple times, it immediately collapsed, the market wasn't there. So, you know, to, to if we're changing up the sexual dynamics, well, maybe those things would change as well. And so those are a couple of the, of the ideas explored in the book. It's like, oh, maybe a market for sex work would develop. Maybe women who were starting to explore their kinks would be doing BDSM for different reasons than, than, than normally. So maybe, maybe they'd want to, you know, high-powered women, maybe they'd start taking on the submissive role because they wanted a vacation for responsibility. 
Right. Or like one thing I hear from many of my, many of my clients who love the, at least the submissive role, sometimes they'll talk a lot about the, I keep the grocery list in my head all the time, or I keep the list of things to do in my head all the time, or I keep everybody on, on everything all the time. I keep them going. I keep their social things. I keep them getting to their appointments. And I don't want to think about any of that. I don't want to think about any of that. I want to actually focus on pleasure. And I find that many of my female identified folk, they are, they are looking for that break of not necessarily responsibility, but over like the, the perfectionism that often happens because of anxiety and that being submissive allows them to actually connect with their bodies, which culture does not want them to do. And I think the entire idea of this book of women essentially getting to be as sexual as they more than likely want to be, many of them, not all of them, of course, but many of them want to be. I can't tell you how many women come to me because that tends to be women seek me out a lot for this very purpose of I I have a hard time finding any kind of desire. I want to... I want to be connected to my partner. I want to have more sex, but my desire is, is, is lacking and I'm trying to understand why. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I kind of address that in, in, in one of the scenes talking about how female desire tends to be more complicated than men. It's not just about I'm horny. Let's flip the switch and get into it. It's about being in the right headspace for want of a better term so that's something that we count on and for guys we kind of expect that they're just kind of plug and play like they're ready to go and that's not the case either for a lot of guys so it's just it was an experiment in in swapping up the roles a little bit of what would happen if if women's sex drive were a little bit more like men's because i guess i had some interesting insight into this. When I was living in Europe, I wound up dating someone from Iceland. And as you probably know, the Scandinavian countries are extremely sexually open and they have different... Their sex education is some of the best in the world. Well, they, they have it. Which is, <laughs> I mean... Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's the first step, America. Yes, exactly. They have, have it. it and it's factual. <laughs> but um, the lady I was dating from Iceland, it is funny to see how sexuality plays out differently when you're from a different culture. And one of the things about Iceland is they had, I want to say sometime in the 1800s, a massive volcano that erupted and killed off half the population. So they had to repopulate themselves and by any means necessary. So that was one of the things. They also had a state sponsor, a state paid for childcare and healthcare and Another weird thing is because of their naming conventions, there's not really, and because of the need to to repopulate, there was no stigma associated with being a single mom. Mm. The entire cultural frame is different. Right. All the impediments, the health impediments, the social impediments to a woman being as sexual as she wanted were removed. Yes. It's like, like a dream scenario in my head. Like, well, yeah, no, it's like culturally, like they, that's what they've got, right? Like that's, if you want people to increase the population, you have yes. to remove the barriers for that to happen. 
Yeah, yeah. And so and childcare the, and, and healthcare are primary ones. Indeed. So this is why within like five minutes of walking into a party at her apartment, she handed me this, uh, there's a series of books. They're out of the UK. I don't know if you get them here, but it's called, it's like a joke thing about different cultures. So it's Xenophobes Guide to Blank. So I'll be, you know, a Xenophobes Guide to the UK, Xenophobes Guide to whatever. And so she had the Xenophobes Guide to Iceland. <laughs> what, it, what they do is they tell you factual stuff about a country, but it's true. So, you know, it's funny, but true. Yeah. So she just walks over, hands me that, turned open to the page that says, no hex on sex. Icelanders like sex. So that's (laughs) definitely the most open approach I've gotten before or since ever. Oh, that's amazing. I need to, I need to uh, find an Icelander and interview them for the pod because that, that really, and I'm going to have to go out and get that, the xenophobes guide to, to, to blank. <laughs> well, yeah, no. So it's, it, it really is. I think that unconsciously informed little green pills. It's like, what happens if when you remove all the impediments? So that's why I kind of built that in. It's like, We've got, you know, reliable STDs under uh, uh, way to manage STDs and, and birth control is not a concern because those are two of the biggest impediments. And then, you know. Um, and then child care so that you can go to work. Child care so that you can give back to your culture and be able to feed yourself and your family, right? Like those two things can, that can change a culture in a huge way. And I don't know that people realize how much it might, would maybe even change desire. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. It's, 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 well, there, and there's another, there's a podcast out there that's extremely revealing. It's also sad, but it's called Dying for Sex. I don't know if you've run across it. Mm, so it. it's, it's a six part episode of a woman who's got terminal cancer. And so essentially, one of the ways she's dealing with it is by kind of living out all her sexual fantasies and being very explorative. And it's as if, well, I don't care if people judge me or shame me or, or I'm not going to do it to myself because I'm dying. I better get this done now <laughs> because <laughs> the chances are going away. And so, you know, she became extremely sexually active because it's like literally the, what would you do if you were going to die tomorrow? It's like, well, she was in that situation for a while. And, you know, her answer was, well, I want to try all this other stuff. And so it's very telling. So it's her and it's another guest or, uh, or her, her best friend was recording it with her and you can hear her best friend struggling with kind of assumptions of shaming and other stuff about you know is this behavior appropriate and 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 you know and that's her best friend so it's it's like the the assumptions of what sexual behavior are are appropriate is so strong that you know it takes something like i'm dying to override it (laughs) Right. It really, it really does. Like the, I think for, for, it'll be kind of interesting in the, in the frame of COVID-19 to see how this changes our world 
I have hope that it will change. There will be fundamental change for the better, but also like there's changes we don't know. And we don't know if it'll be in, there'll be scenarios like what you're describing where people will cling to some of those old cultural norms or even be afraid to face their shame, face their worry, face their anxiety, and then truly look to change. You know, I'm just, I'm just so, uh, I'm so ecstatic that you wrote this book. You wrote a book that has social commentary, but also get you off. Like that combination is just <laughs> incredible. So we do want to make sure that we uh, get to, I, I didn't, I didn't say it at the beginning of the episode, like I was supposed to, I'm, I was gonna say it in the beginning of the episode. We are gonna do a book giveaway thing friends. So I know we've talked about five hard copies and a hundred electronic copies. So those who email by the first week of May, so this episode is going to come out, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, it would be the 16th of April. So you have from now until the first week of May to email AB at littlegreenpills at mail.com, correct? Yes, that is correct. And that is mail.com, not Gmail. A lot of people don't know that there is, in fact, an email service out there, just mail.com. So littlegreenpills at mail.com. And I will get those out as I receive them. I'm so excited for folks to get their hands on this book. I'm going to also do an Instagram giveaway. It'll be similar, but if you follow me on Instagram at Erica Miley Therapy and you email, you will also get an entry as well. So I am just so glad that you have come on the show. Is there uh, any, any other like little words of wisdom that you have to the listeners before we wrap up today? I don't know about words of wisdom, uh, except, <laughs> except that, you know, one of the people I follow because, you know, it's, it's both fascinating and titillating is Dan Savage, you know, the, the, long, the veteran sex advice columnist. Dan follows me. I feel honored by that. And um, I know that Dr. Lay and, and Dan have worked on something not too long ago. If Dan made no other contribution to human civilization, it's his concept of GGG, being good, being giving, and being game to try new things. It's like, that would fix like, I don't know, half of sexual dysfunction out there. People would just adopt that mindset. So, And being um, willing to, something that I loved that Dan says, he says, being willing to leave your partner better than you found them. Yes, the campground rule. That's yes, the other thing. The, the campground rule. I just love, I think that I, I, I am often teaching my my clients how to explore their own values. And this is a value that comes up organically for most people I work with, that they want to be good to the people in their lives. They want to enrich the lives of the people in their life. And yet they struggle often to see beyond some of their own shame, anxiety, and be able to leave people better than they found them. So I think that just the, those, those kind of rules of the road are, are really good ones to follow. Thank you so much, AB, for being here with me. I'm just, uh, I just feel so honored. Thank you. Well, Hopefully this book will allow people to explore ideas about sex in a different frame. And maybe that will help too. And if nothing else, it should at least be interesting to read. Yeah, absolutely. I can endorse that. It's wonderful. All right, folks. Thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode. And we will see you next time. 
Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the Gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.